Well, hello there, lucky boys and girls. It is high. This is Welcome to the Tasty Air Bits Podcast. Here, we're all about the drag, the art, the trash, and the comedy. <laughs> this episode, we will be taking a holistic approach. We will be sliding out of the cornhole with a whole new segment from a hand puppet Barney Scrotum called Crazy Stories About Poop. And to add to the holiness, we have a deep dive into the interview rabbit hole with famous stand-up comedian Robin Tran. Plus, a whole lot of trashy poetry from the pie holes of famous sexy man Eddie Danger and bizarre drag performer Charles Galen. It's going to be a no host but episode, people! Dangerous with famous sexy man and poet Eddie Danger. Mm. This is a lecture on foot porn by Eddie Danger. I am not a man who takes great pleasure from the giggles and the squeaks, nor a man who carries on and on, writhing in between the sheets. As a coxman by trade, this was mm, quite a change of pace to perform with cock covered, articulating subtle movements from my ligaments and face. Inside the porn actor's studio, I have been asked to speak on the performance of great theater restrained, taking a hairbrush to the soles of my feet. Such a hooting and moaning from the tickles and the probing, and I too hardened to feel. Such a joyful noise that fills the air. They tell me laughter helps us heal. Each and every great story needs a climactic ascent to make this narrative complete. As the hooting and the wailing and the carrying on reaches some manner of orgasmic peak, I giggle, teeing, ho-hoing about, I'm moaning, I'm groaning, I'm even shout. Then we arrive at a shiver, a subtle quiver which spans from my fingertips to feet. And silence befalls the room as I manifest this great deceit. But what is this great deception but the protection from what is real? That after all these years of doing porn, such dramatics are hard to feel. Thank you. Follow Eddie Danger on Instagram at Eddie Dangerous. One word. Barney Scrotum here. I'm a hand puppet, and uh, I got a new segment on this podcast. It's called uh, Crazy Stories About Poop. And uh, for my first guest, I got Kent Holmes. He's like a big rock and roll guy. He's been in like 40 bands. He could play any instrument, except maybe like an oboe or a French horn. Uh, probably could figure out a sitar. But uh, so he's a real cool guy. He's been doing this forever. Here he is. How you doing, Kent? I'm doing all right. So what's your crazy story about poop? Yeah, so I, I think that what you're probably talking about is uh, this was many, many years ago when I was a much younger person than I am now, back in a land that was 
shrouded in mythology, mist, and legend. You mean Los Angeles? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In an age when when dragons and wizards were pretty much, uh, you know, ruled the land, which was the 80s. And uh, I was a child roadie, <laughs> and I was living with some dudes who were the rock band Poison. Poison? Yeah, this, this was when they were a club band, and I had never heard of them before I started working with them. We had a mutual friend, but I started doing little art jobs and stuff, and they, they let me stay on the couch. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much all you can really hope for when you're like 18. So I heard there was lots of sexy girls and coke back in those days. What's all that about? You know, it, we were such big kids. It's like, and that particular group of people, it's like drugs hadn't really worked its way in yet, you know, and uh, there were plenty of girls around. It's hard to believe that drugs didn't actually affect this <laughs> crazy poop story, but uh, why don't you go on with it anyway? I can pretty much ensure that the only drugs that play any part in this story is going to be insulin, and that's only uh, sort of ancillary or tangential to the story. So it sounds all exciting and stuff because, you know, they eventually went on to sell, I believe, like, Literally, like over 30,000 records. 50 million. Potato, potato. But it's like, at the time, they were just a club band. They were a very big club band. Um, could sell out a thousand seats anywhere in Los Angeles any given night. But they weren't, um, they didn't have a record out yet or anything. But anyway, so we were just bored, dumb kids with not much to do. And so we'd be sitting around the house and we'd come up with, any number of really silly things to sort of pass the time. And I don't know how it started, but at one point this started to involve poop. And I'm sure it was one of those things where like, you know, we were all sitting around one day and like one of the guys just had an extraordinary poop and you know, you're living in a house full of dudes and you're like, oh, I've just had an extraordinary poop. And you're like, I have to, I have to tell people about this. People need to know about this poop. So you go and you tell your buddies and they go, this is an extraordinary poop, but I think I can better that poop. So, Oh, so that's when it ramped up in short order. This became a competition oh. or if not a competition necessarily like sort of, um, I don't know how to put it. Like we implied rules on it. You know, it's like, the idea was that for your poop to be the best poop, the first rule was it had to be like straight. We weren't measuring no curves. We weren't going non-Euclidean geometry with it. You know, it had to be just like end to end. So no, like a golden ratio. Yeah, no, none of that stuff. We were very simple lads and uh, our opinions on poop were, were not formed yet by advanced um, mathematics. So the second rule of the poop was that in order to measure it, you had to be able to pull it out of the water, right? And this was usually done using a pencil, you know? Wait a minute. You're pulling poops out of the toilet with a pencil? Well, we were young. I mean, it's like, it doesn't even matter how much fiber you eat. When you're 22, your poops are magnificent, right? You could stack them up. You could build a log cabin. You could birth a president in there. And that man could go on to free the slaves. These are the poops that anyone over 35 dreams of. I dream of these poops myself. And it's not because of weird stuff, but just because they were magnificent. So you had to be able to pull it out of there, which meant that we weren't going to be trying to measure any like stack of poops, you know, like somebody could fill a bowl with like little marbles or something. And we're not going to go like, 
yeah, okay. So I guess in aggregate, that's maybe 15 inches of poop, right? You know? So that was rule number two. Rule number one, it had to stay together while you pulled it out to measure it. Rule number two was that it, you know, it, 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 or rather it can be curved and it had to stay together, you know? So did you weigh them? No, <laughs> we were, we're not weirdos, man. We didn't do displacement in water. We didn't do weight. We didn't like, you know, force any value judgments on them. You know, it's like, well, does, you know, is, is this poop more worthy of existence than this other poop, you know, which is interesting because like um, one of the people involved in this was actually diabetic. So his poops had a, a little different character to them. And that's where the insulin comes in. Typically they'd be like lighter in color, for instance, you know, good tan poop or whatever, as opposed to the dark logs of the rest of us who are, you know, God-fearing people. So these poops, though, sometimes the point is sort of uh, unclear where the exact point where the poop starts. So how do you measure that? Uh, well, it's pretty clear when it's in water. I mean, you know, um, you know, we weren't, uh, don't get me wrong, we didn't measure them until they were clear of the person. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So over time, we started to get sort of um, an idea of the range of the poops you know, that were, were typical, you know? And so if somebody had an extraordinary poop, it was usually a rarer occurrence, but more impressive, you know? Eventually what we decided was that if we had a really good, you know, we had one that was a contender that we would pull that poop out and we decided that we would dry them. Right. And then eventually, like after uh, summer or whatever, we would, we, we would sort of award them best poop, second best poop, sort of an Olympic grading of poops, right? And we would spray paint them so we could have a gold poop and a silver poop, you know? And these would be the champion poops of the house, right? You get some bronze paint for third place? Uh, or is that, it's not even worth it having a third place yeah, poop, Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it's like, um, oh God, what's the name of that guy who came in third place in the, um, in the Olympics last year? Oh, I don't know. Gee, nobody does. I don't watch sports. I only watch, well, I watch hockey. I don't know any team names or anything, but they're so big that they crash into each other going 40 miles an hour, and that's pretty cool. You know, I, yeah, everybody likes to see a puck slapped around on occasion, you know. But so we decided to do this, and um, we had this back porch at the house that we thought would be a good place for this. So we, we would take, you know, the really good poops and put them in like Reynolds wrap boxes and put them back out on the back porch to dry figuring that once they dried, then we could, you know, spray them and make these sort of poop trophies. Didn't they stink? Well, you know, I mean, uh, you, I mean, how much time do you spend on your back porch, Mr. Ballsack? I guess I even have a porch. What, what is the standard of life for an anthropomorphic scrot at this point? Yeah, I guess the back porch isn't a big thing for me. But I do like to go down to the bar and talk to the guys about uh, pseudoscience. I never touch pseudofeds myself. But so eventually... Uh, We've got, a, you know, several of these prize poops out there drying out. Several. Uh, how many are you talking here? Uh, not a lot. A dozen? No, no, way less than that. I mean, if you've got maybe three or four, you know, because it's kind of like if you don't want to stack up poop. I don't know if you realize this, but it's just it's not done. You know, you don't want to have like, you know, oh, here's our 400 poops. We're trying to figure out which one is the biggest poop because that'd be weird. So, you know, we had probably the top, you know, two or three or four poops out on the back porch in Reynolds wrap boxes or, or, you know, aluminum foil boxes, just sort of drying out there. Right. And so the seasons turned and as happens to all young rock bands, at some point we went out on, on tour 
figuring that when we got back, these poops would be good and dried out and we could then manufacture our poop trophies. So when you were in like Cologne, Germany, rocking out, were you thinking about those poops drying back home? I didn't go international with the poison, sir. I mean, I went to Japan, but that's a little different than Germany. It's okay. So you're like, you're in New York City. And you're on stage, or you're off stage because you're the guitar tech, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm off stage panicking while the guitar player is is doing his best to to destroy his gear, and I'm doing the best I can to maintain it. But you're thinking about those poops drying on occasion. You know, it's it's like you know sometimes it was that little cartoon thought balloon with you know the poop in it, but mostly we didn't think about it much. But that being said, while we were out on tour, there was another crew member whose name will not be mentioned here and he certainly never went on to play bass and rat but he had a, a poop that he thought was also extraordinary so <laughs> he dragged it out and he put it in the bathtub in this hotel we were in and he's like dudes you got to come check out this poop and of course it's a poop drying in a hotel bathroom tub so you open the door to the room and you're like wow it smells like you have a poop out in the air in here you know, and it was disgusting. And so he put it in a towel and took it out in the, in the parking lot and threw it under a truck somewhere, I think, in Arizona, which I doubt it's still there. This has been several decades at this point. Did he have to pay for the towel? Uh, you know, they never make you pay for a towel. And I mean, you know, it's like they find a poop in a towel in the, the parking lot. And it's like, I think it's pretty much unspoken because there's two things you can do. You can either get to the bottom of it find out the story and deal with the people who did it. Or you can forget all about it and go on with your life and your life is way better. So I think they probably just did that. But that being said, it's like, you know, occasionally you might think like, oh gosh, we're going to get back to town. We'll have our, we'll have our poops. All right. You know, our poops that we left behind. So I couldn't tell you what tour this was. I couldn't tell you how long it was, but the guys had a couple of the girls that they were dating watching the house while we were gone, you know, house sitting, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, living there. And when we got back, they had, of course, taken much better care of the house than we had as dudes. And we go out to the back porch and all of our poops were gone. What? They had cleaned up our poops. They had taken these poops and thrown them out because they thought, wow, there's poops out here. Poops are disgusting. But what about the competition? The competition ended there, you know, nobody had the heart to continue at that point, you know, and uh, truth be told, we were sort of splintering, you know, it's like this is turning into a Greek tragedy here. Well, you know, I mean, the guys the money started coming in and, and I eventually got fired and went off to work for another band. I don't know when that was in, in relation to the to the poop story in, in time, but you know, eventually we dissolved the household and the guys got their own apartments and stuff because, you know, they had literally sold like 30,000 records or something and they could afford things like that. So that summer of poop was never repeated. Wow. That I know of. That is some kind of crazy poop story, right? Um, I think it's a very sensible poop story, to tell you the truth. You know, this is the first crazy poop story, but I'm thinking it might be the last because how are you going to top that? <laughs> Nobody can top that poop story. Well, I mean, the only thing that would have been better, of course, is if, you know, if we'd gotten back and, and the girls had actually bronzed the poops or something, you know. I mean, how cool would that have been to come home and it's like, oh, we had them metal coated for you. 
But no, girls are weird. You know, you can do electrolysis and stuff like that. <laughs> what on poop? They weren't hairy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not electrolysis. What's the term? <laughs> I think you're. I think you're thinking of electroplating. Electroplating. Yeah, <laughs> could have done that. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know if it works that way. I, I, I'm. I'm not aware of anyone who's ever had feces chromed. Okay. Well, is there any consolation here? I mean, who of the housemate did have the longest poop? You know, I can't honestly remember. And like I said, it was. Are you just being modest? <laughs> um, it's probably it's probably the reverse of that. Had it been my poop, I'd probably still be walking around to this day doing some sort of Al Bundy thing. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, that poop I had senior year score. So Brett Michaels, you will never know if Brett Michaels had the biggest poop. Uh, no, I mean, that's that's lost to time. That's. Uh... <laughs> That's a story that's that's lost to the magical time that was the 80s. I feel terrible. I didn't think a, this segment is going to be so depressing. <laughs> well, but this is like a Greek tragedy. Like I said, it's a Greek tragedy. Where are those poops now? I keep thinking it's like they're they're lost fawns in a forest or something. But you could think that about every poop. I mean, there were some other poops that we flushed that were magnificent. There was one one of the guys had that looked, I swear to God, like a duck sitting up in the toilet. There was another one that was a question mark with a little period thing at the end of it. It was wonderful, but it didn't you know, work for the competition. There were ones that didn't stay together after you tried to pull them out. And then you've got two less extraordinary poops, and it's not like you can put them back together. I mean, I mean, I suppose a doctor could. Not sure how a doctor can put a poop back together, but I wouldn't mind watching. I have ideas of how the doctor could do it, but I'm not sure which discipline of doctor would be the one to reassemble poop. Proctologist, you would think, but who knows? Well, I, I figured they got other problems, you know? I don't know. Or maybe they're over it. Maybe just a lab specialist. Who knows? Anyway, well, Kent, that was an awesome story about poop. It was a crazy story about poop, but also sort of a sad story about poop. And uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, relating this incredible story to the wonderful fans of poop out there. And, you know, I will say that that the real lesson of the entire thing is, is that the thing that you should really value is the poops you make along the way. That's true. It's not the 30,000 records you sell. It's not the people you've lost. It's not the places you've gone. That's right. But the poops you make along the way.
And now... More? No one has ever asked for more. Alright, fine. Here's your second helping of trash, you hungry beast. E-A-H, a poem by Stephanie G. Galindo, also known as Charles Galen, inspired from Sinister Act, a beautiful macabre improv team. Love is shit, love is light, love is strength, love is meh. I am power. You believe in him, in her, in they? Well, I'm right here, bitch. Believe in me. I shower. The armpits musk. The divider. The gooch. When it starts smelling, the water flows down the sweet. Cooch. I powder. <sighs> Crack cocaine's a hell of a drug. I am a flower. And I have allergies. I claw. I am so much better than Sandy. I have actual claws. I flog. Google it. It's fun. You are loved. Please, for the love of me, say it to yourself at least ten times a day. I charge by the bucks. 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 I peck at your door, just like the raven whore. Especially this bro, Edgar Allan Ho. Follow Stephanie Galindo, aka Charles Galen, on Instagram at CharlieDC4. And now a word from our sponsors. From Out TV. Do you need release? Buckle up, baby girl. The fun's about to begin. Yeah! <laughs> this here is Crazy Town, and you're the mayor of it. Why does the party always end up in the kitchen? I'm here to probe your black hole. Eat your heart out, bitch. Oh, yeah? Yeah! Let's get some drugs. I had my heart set on a pizza, though. Fresh as fuck. Mmm, mmm. Brace yourself. <laughs> what is this thing? It's a body up in here. Don't be sorry, be better. I'm still the baddest demon around. I'm a sexy yin-yang, motherfucker. Feels like the real thing. <laughs> then freaking me the fuck out. <laughs> Let's spray this bitch. Let the fisting begin. <laughs> now on Amazon Prime Video, only $2 each high-def episode. And also available on the OutTV Apple TV channel. Starring Bitch Puddin', Sean Forrester, Foxy Ajway, Ave Rose, Clit Eatswood, and Disasterina as Dr. Sato. Place. It's my fancy store. Go buy my shit. Melodies are 
samurai, t-shirts, stickers, apparels, badges, greeting cards, paintings, jewelry, namo pens, accessories, plenty of fun stuff for you and your stupid friends. <laughs> Robin Tran is a Vietnamese transgender lesbian comedian, actress, and writer. She is super funny and has appeared on Comedy Central's Roast Battle and the Don't Look At Me Hulu special and also done tons of other fun things too. Robin Tran, thank you so much for being on my funny little podcast. Thanks for having me. Who is Robin Tran? Oh my God. Um... Oh, you know, you just gave me a flashback. I once, like, when I was not medicated and I had to do a job interview, the first question they asked was, like, tell me about yourself. <laughs> and and I froze and I said, I'm really neurotic. That was like, my first answer, you know. I don't, <laughs> I guess I, I'm a lot of things. I am a, I have bipolar. I am a wrestling fan. I'm a stand-up comedian. Stand-up comedian is third, I guess, in that list. <laughs> A uh, very, uh, very neurotic person. And, uh, you know, I used to think about, like, what is, like, the one thing that I am? You know, I used to live life that way. But I just think, like, you are, like, you're just so many different things that you'll never be able to figure out what you are. You know, people hate that question, or I just imagine they do, because it is really difficult to talk about yourself. And um, your comedy is so good at talking about yourself. It's silly for me to ask the question because all <laughs> I have to do is uh, listen to one of your comedy shows and it's like I know everything about you. Thank you. Let me just say the one, re not the one reason, but one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because I went onto Twitter and uh, asked who is your favorite LGBTQ plus stand-up comedian uh -huh. and i have 13.5 thousand followers and i only got 10 responses 10 fucking responses but two of those responses were robin trans so one fifth of twitter is on your side <laughs> <laughs> i thought there was something there so then i went down the robin tran rabbit hole okay and i saw all your super funny stand-up and the roast battles and everything <laughs> Right. And then the Twitter and everything is really interesting and it's coming from such a unique perspective and I'm glad you're out there doing it. Thank you. When you were growing up, were you always the funny person in your family? Oh, no. My dad was the funny one. By the way, you didn't, you know, the compliment you gave me, you didn't have to like put the part where only 10 people responded. You could have just said <laughs> a fifth of there. I would have been like, wow, a thousand people picked me. You could have lied. I'm kidding. Um, but that's no, my, what the editing's for. <laughs> I can go back and lie. I'm, to, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, you know, my dad was the funny one. My dad uh, did comedy. I don't know, like, what kind of comedy he did. I know he did comedy on the radio, like in the Vietnamese radio station. He would make people laugh for money. Like he would get paid to just be a comedian on the radio. I think he probably did some open mics, and he would sing at weddings. Like he would make up funny songs at weddings, and people just knew him as like the funny one in the family. And I would watch stand up because of, you know, my dad was so funny. So I'd watch like Chris Rock and uh, I watched like all the HBO specials and everything. And I tried to be funny and I would fail. Like I just mm. was so unfunny for so long. And it was so embarrassing because you could see the attempt, you know, when you could see someone's trying to be funny mm -hmm. and they're not funny. And so I just have like thousands of 
faces of unamused people in my brain. Like, just I'm traumatized by how unfunny I was for so long. Well, when was the time when you thought, I'm funny now? It was my, la my last roast battle was last March. And I feel like it was like I finally found my comedy voice. Like, I wrote this whole post about, like, I've been doing comedy for so long. I finally feel like I'm funny. And I found my voice and everything. And everything came together. And then I was like, nothing is going to stop me now. And then the next day, uh, quarantine happened. Mm -hmm. The COVID had the, the, very, the very next day. It was just the perfect timing for it. But I think... Um, Like, I think when I was like, so when I was unmedicated or when I was like on bad medication, like every time someone would try to give me a compliment, I would try to deflect it somehow. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not actually funny. And, you know, I had really bad imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So even when I was doing well on stage, I'm like, well, I'm a good comedian. It doesn't mean I'm funny. It's because I planned it out. Like anything I did, I minimized it. Mm. So it's just been like recently that I found myself to be funny. And which is great because when I am not funny, then I can, I still feel like I'm funny. I'm just not funny in this instance, you know? When you were becoming a stand-up comedian, there must have been something inside that said, give it a try. You have good jokes at least, or you have good material. So what was it that got you onto stage? You know, I, I guess like I always wanted to, I always wanted to be one of those people. Like whenever I would see them on television, just the feeling of holding a microphone and everyone has to like listen to you. And then, you know, they laugh at you. It was such a powerful image in my brain. I knew that if uh, if I was given a chance, I would learn how to do it well because mm -hmm. I watched so much of it. When you were growing up, who were the people you were watching on TV? Who were the funny people? It was mostly Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. They were the big two. Um, and also Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm was big. So the first time you went on stage, I, I saw a little video about it. Can you just go over that a little bit? I was auditioning for the talent show at my high school. And I went on stage and I was performing for like seven like ASB students, like associated student body. And I knew all of, they were all my classmates. And I would tell a joke and then they wouldn't laugh. And then I would apologize and start crying after every joke. That was like my set was just tell a joke, no laughter, <laughs> crying. And then um, behind me were my friends who were going to audition because they were in a band. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were next, and every, every after every joke bombed, they would do the, <laughs> yeah, I just, I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I wasted your time, I'm never doing this again, I'm never going back on stage. Was it ironically funny, though, were people... No, no, it was not funny, I was not confident, my voice was shaking, I knew I wasn't funny, I just wanted to go home and, like, never come back to school, because, like, they all saw it, you know, and then um, they told me a week later... We, d we don't have enough acts for the talent show. So everyone who auditioned is going to get in. So you're going to have to do stand up for like 300 people. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this is the worst. <laughs> and so my friend gave me some advice and she said, well, you're a drama student, right? You know, and I said, yeah. She said, well, pretend you're a confident person. Just pretend you're confident. <laughs> I, that really stuck with me. Like, so just pretend this is a role. So before the talent show for like a week, I just pretended I was a, a cocky, arrogant person. And I would walk around the school and I would just kind of talk until they, I said something that made them laugh. And then I would write it down. And that was my set for the talent show. And then my talent show set, I got a standing ovation and uh, it's one of the best days of my life. You know, that's a really good technique. Yeah. 
you still do that technique? I mean, you can't walk around right now because, <laughs> you know, you'll die. But um, for more than one reason, you know, pandemic is one of the reasons. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's dangerous out there. Yeah. For like three different reasons for me. Yes. <laughs> um, I think I don't try to be confident anymore. I think I just kind of am more confident and I think I would like it if more people who were not white guys were just more confident. I, I don't like that we like let white guys like monopolize all the confidence, you know? Mm. So I kind of do it out of spite sometimes too. And it's like the the more the more confident I am, the better I feel. Mm-hmm. And the more people feel inspired to it and the better it's for the cause. So it's gonna help everybody that I love. Well fake it till you make it actually does work. It's sort of like the placebo effect. It is, you know, yes, you're right, like yeah. Even, even if you know you're faking it, it does help you. So I'm, I'm totally with you on that. So when you started doing your, your stand-up, you were starting as Robert. Yes. When you got on stage, you started doing the clubs and this sort of thing. Did you sort of realize that you were really a transgender lesbian? Never. Not, not a single time. I, I was as surprised as uh, everyone else, you know, um, being Robert, I was, I yelled a lot. I was very animated. I was like, you know, paint, hit the stool, talk about sex. And, um, and I was, you know, I was funny as Robert. I've seen some of the YouTube videos. He's definitely funny as Robert. But it, it was not authentic. When I watch old clips of Robert, I'm like, okay, well, you know, Robert's funny and he's good at this, but there's something underneath it. I don't realize that I have, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it was suppressing this. Because now that I, now when I do comedy, I don't really yell that much anymore. I yell sometimes, but I'm very, I'm kind of calmer, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I didn't think it was, I was a transgender lesbian, I angry dude. And I was trying to figure out why I was so angry all the time. So mm-hmm. every time I went on stage, I was like, I'm angry because of this thing. And I'm angry because of that thing. And I find out what it was. So I would lash out at everybody. I would lash out at the crowd sometimes, at other comics, at everyone. Your uh, transition really didn't have anything to do with your stand-up career at all. No, actually, it, I was terrified about my stand-up career when it came out. I came out on Facebook, actually. You know, I actually, um, I was on my way back to work one day on my lunch break, and I heard, like, this song, this girly song playing, and I just, like, turned it up and sang it instead of, like, quietly singing it to myself. I was like, oh, I'm just going to sing it loudly. I've never done that before, and that one moment... It's like when my whole life flashed before my eyes and I thought about being a kid and wanting to be a girl. And hmm. I suppressed it for like like 30 years or whatever. And then I was I cried for like half an hour in my car. It, it felt like I was chilled, like goosebumps all over, mm-hmm. you know? And I couldn't stop crying. And I said, I think my life makes sense now. And then that night I had a show. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey guys, I don't have jokes for this really. And this is not a joke itself. I want you guys to know that I'm being serious now. But I realized today that I am a transgender woman. And I don't know what this means. I don't know I'm going to start wearing the clothes. I'm scared about that. But I should let you guys know that because I'm going to probably dress up in a few months. And I don't want you guys to be surprised. Hmm. And everyone was like, what the like, what the hell? And I was like, all right, guys, have a good night. And that's, I, that's how I told my friends. Did they believe you? Oh, yeah. They believed me. They were just in shock. Well, that sounds honestly very therapeutic. Yeah. I mean, what what a way to tell your friends and family about it. Yeah. Did you realize at that point that the stand-up is like a therapy for you? Yeah, yeah. I was stand, stand-up was always a, 
therapeutic for me. I, I dealt with depression for like 25 years, you know, so whenever I would go on stage, I would be very open about whatever I felt in that moment. So I, it was a form of therapy for a while. And um, I've grown to realize that stand-up is not the best place for therapy, is that, you know, the best place for therapy is therapy. Disappointment <laughs> right before this, like at two o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like still in the therapist mood right before I talk to you. So well, you know, I can understand. I I went to therapy for years. It's so important, and you know, it just brings up things that you don't want to look at, but you have to, you know, to uh, make your life better. So everybody should go to therapy. I think everyone should. Yeah, I mean, it's very everybody, helpful. Everybody needs to know about themselves and why they do things. You know. Yeah, I did. I oh, I, I was trying to tell you, I I did come out on Facebook. I messaged my girlfriend when I realized I was in my car. I said, hey, baby, I love you. I'm a woman. That's how I told her. I just told her over Facebook Messenger. Mm-hmm. And then I just wrote a Facebook post. Apparently, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Is there really a supposed to? I, I there, You know, there, I went to like one of these LGBTQ meetings, like where were trans people are, and they were telling the steps that you're supposed to take when you come out. And it was like, you know, you're not supposed to tell everyone at once. And I'm like, I did it all wrong, apparently. I just went on Facebook. I said, hey, everyone, I'm a woman. I don't know what this means, you know. And then I remember, like, the overwhelming support I got. And that made me feel a lot better. And then I lost, like, 20 Facebook friends at the same time. Like, a lot of people also like were like, I'm done with you. Good riddance. Good riddance. No, exactly. Out with the old, in with the new. Yeah, get out of there. Yeah, fuck them. Exactly. So let's talk about the roast battles a little bit. Those are such compelling videos <laughs> watching you battle these people. Why are you so drawn to the roast battles? And is it because you're super competitive? That's part of it. Yeah. I When I was a kid, I saw this. Um, it was called Night of a Thousand Bleeps. It was on Comedy Central. <laughs> it was a South Park episode. And then the roast of Drew Carey. I didn't know what a roast was. I'd never heard of one. It's the hardest that I ever laughed in my life till that moment. Just like the how how mean it was, but how clever it was. I mean, I don't remember most of the jokes now, but I just remember thinking, I want to do that one day. And it's weird because, you know, when I think about it, I also love professional wrestling when they talk shit in the ring. Mm-hmm. I like rap battles. I guess I do like the kind of the bravado of I'm better than you and talking shit without there being like real violence, you know, because I'm not right. I'm not a fighter. And so I was very uh, caught up in the, ro- the roasting world. And then the show Roast Battle started happening and people were like, you should do Roast Battle. And they told me this when I was Robert. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't really want to do Roast Battle, you know. And then I came out as Robin and it was getting big. Roast Battle was getting big. It started off small, starting to get big. Like people like, J- like Jim Carrey would show up, Dave Chappelle would show up. Wow. And then so my friend was like, I'll take you to one. And you can see what it's like live. Mm-hmm. So he took me to one. And man, it was the most electric environment. I get chills just thinking about it. I have never done a show more electric than that. And then I said, I just want to do it once mm-hmm. and, and I'll be done. I just want to just kind of, you know, check it off my bucket list, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the week leading up to the roast battle, I was so scared because I was going to be the first transgender roast battler. Mm. So I was messaging people and like, what am I going to do when they make fun of me? Like, am I going to be able to take it? Am I setting the trans movement back 50 years? Like, am I, is this like, you know, like I was overthinking it. And then I think one of my friends said, you just need to worry about doing a good job. If you start thinking about the cause and everyone else, you're going to get all fucked up, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I focused just on the jokes. Like I tried to just like, just focus on the jokes and um, it really shows, by the way, I really like your style. Oh, thank you. Very matter of fact. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun to do it that way. Um, 
I was so nervous, you know, they're, they're about to introduce me on stage, right? She's transgender and people start kind of like clapping because they've never seen a transgender battler before. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy named Earl who played the villain, you know, the villain that says messed up things. Mm-hmm. So while they're like, Robin Tran, she's great. She's from Orange County. And he just yells, all right, bring this dude out. I want to see her, you know? And that just like <laughs> made me laugh so hard. <laughs> like I gut busting laugh. It, it was like this kind of, they broke the seal. Like so, mm. so, someone made the first joke and then I come on stage and electric people are making jokes and, but it's so full of love, you know, there was no hatred behind it. Mm. And then, you know, my opponent does his first joke. And then I tell my first joke, um, my opponent is overweight, you know? So I said, uh, Tim's an alcoholic, 12 steps to the program. He'll never join in a distance. He'll never run. And I said this joke and just, <laughs> ah, like just like the, the biggest laugh I've ever gotten in comedy. And I guess it was like, I can't go back to doing regular stand-up after this. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard. It's just like this pop, pop, pop. And so I was like, okay, I'll I'll do another one at some point. I don't know when. And then my friend Connor was like, we should roast battle next week. And then they put me in the main event, my second battle. I was in the main event, my second battle ever. And then I think I, I got my ass beat by Connor. But one of the jokes that got a big laugh was I said, Connor is a giant cunt that I wish I had. And that was like just such a just gigantic laugh. And then I'm like, I, I think I'm just going to keep doing this now. And then so I just started getting really competitive with it and trying to get on TV. Like I have, um, I have bipolar, like I told you. So I, mm-hmm. it was hard for me to get out and do comedy like every night or whatever. Well, it's grueling just watching that. It's grueling. Yeah. And I thought if you can just kill it at roast battle, like once every six weeks, in front of judges and that will see you, then you'll eventually get on TV. Mm-hmm. So I just put all of my eggs in roast battle for a while. One night I was doing a roast battle and Comedy Central was in the audience and I did not know. I told a 9-11 joke. Comedy Central saw it and they just were like, we should put her on TV. And that's how I got my first TV appearance. I've watched several on the YouTubes and it's everyone seems to be rooting for you in these competitions. Yeah. It always seems like you win, even though you say, you know, sometimes you lose. I've lost almost every roast battle I've ever had. But just because you're up there as a trans woman, mm-hmm. people give you more credit. And I mean, also, how hard is it to be a white guy and hurl a bunch of insults at marginalized people, right? <laughs> yeah. It's as easy as falling out of bed for them. <laughs> but you're on the other side and you have to think of like real material. Yeah. I just love the delivery because it's the material just stands up by itself. There's no like crazy gesticulation. There's no like, <laughs> oh, I gotcha. It's just like, no. I, here it is. I like to be like so calmly mean. <laughs> like I don't need to do all that stuff. What I'm going to, my words will murder you. You know, I have this. Oh yeah. The joke I told was my, my opponent was overweight. And I said uh, on 9-11, Keith missed the flight, the crash World trade center which means he's personally responsible for killing the two people who took his seat. And I think that was like, just, that was the biggest life I've ever gotten. You know, do you know how I roast battle people? I, I use empathy for evil. Hmm. Like when I'm writing jokes about somebody, I pretend that I'm my opponent. Like I just try to like think about who they are as a person. And now I'm my opponent in my head. And then I talk to myself as my opponent until I hurt my own feelings as them. Like I try to like the thing they're insecure about. Like if I'm battling somebody, like I battled my friend Joe Urell and he has cerebral palsy. He's heard all the cerebral palsy jokes. So I I did jokes about how no one will ever love him, you know? Like mm-hmm. go for like what is gonna hurt their feelings. Honestly, it's excruciating watching those things. 
I know you're fine up there. You're living. You're just loving it. And you're just getting your licks in and everything. And you and it's one of your favorite things to do. But I'm up there. I'm not up there. I haven't gone to one of these. But I'm looking on the video and I'm thinking, I'm so worried about you. <laughs> I'm worried about Robin Trent. Are you going to be okay? There are only, I think there's only been two jokes that hurt my feelings. Oh, which one? Do you remember? Yeah, one of them was uh, battling my friend Ramsey, and he's um, Middle Eastern. And he goes, uh, Robin is so annoying that if my racist, sexist, transphobic father met her, the thing he would hate most is still her personality. <laughs> and it was not just a joke, but the crowd went insane. And I was like, did you all think I'm annoying? Like, I expected trans jokes. Or, <laughs> like, I didn't think you were going to go after my personality. They hit you below the belt. And then one time, uh, my friend Connor said, uh, Robin is pre-op for a liposuction. <laughs> Uh, and then the the third one I remember, the third one that hurt my feelings was when my friend Nicole said, Robin gained a bunch of weight. It was the only way to make her dick disappear without health insurance. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, triple hitter, Nicole. So those are the only three jokes that I remember that like, actually like, hurt my feelings. I would feel like it would be strange to not make jokes about trans people and make jokes about everybody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that feels like I would feel like left out, you know? Right. I hear you. Let's see what else. You know, um, I'm married to a lady mm -hmm. and she is a Filipina. Mm -hmm. And recently this a horrible shooting happened in Atlanta. These sort of mass shootings happen all the time these days, apparently, you know, but it really hit her hard and it really affected her like a deeper than she had expected. So is this sort of like this anti-Asian uh, sentiment out there? Is this affecting your career or your personal life in a, in a significant way? I remember when Trump started doing the China virus stuff. I just, I, I just kind of knew. I just knew that everyone was trying to find someone to blame for mm -hmm. uh, COVID. And so I remember one time I was, I was walking to the bank. And uh, this is like, you know, way in the beginning of the pandemic. And there were like, there's a couple of people walking ahead of me. And they would keep turning around and looking at me angrily. And I was like, ah, it's starting, you know, mm. that never happened to me before. And I like one of my, my friend's boyfriend got like yelled at at a, a Whole Foods in Los Angeles. And so I was like, man, this is, this is going to be hard for a while. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like when the, the shooting happened, I was like, you know, of course it was going to happen. Like it, this was, it was all leading up. People were saying shit for months. They were like, there's all these Asian hate crimes and no one gives a shit. They were tweeting about it mm -hmm. every day. My friends would tweet about like another person got hit, another person got a call. And, and like, it just it seemed like no one listened or no one cared. And then, you know, uh, this tragedy happens. And now people are like, wow, who could have seen this coming? Like you weren't fucking listening. You know, what's really, it's really kind of annoying to me right now. It's like, it's been like a week and a half, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like they've all forgotten about it. You know, like white people have such a, like a short term memory like, we're going to stop the Asian hate, stop this. And it's like, you guys have moved on already to, like, the boat or whatever, you know? Like, you guys don't care anymore about this thing. I think that makes me so mad. But I am more hesitant to go outside even more, you know? Mm -hmm. It's already hard with COVID and being trans. And now, like, I have to worry about being Asian on top of that. Is it more dangerous for you in Orange County than it is in someplace like Los Angeles? I think Lo Orange County would have been scary. You know, I'm glad I moved. I moved uh, to Los Angeles from Orange County. Oh, okay. I thought you were still in Orange County. No, no, no. Oh, I feel way safer in Los Angeles 
But the fact that I got stared down in Los Angeles was like, wow, it's it's like, imagine if this wasn't a liberal city, you know? Well, I was in Chinatown the other day, and there was this sort of motorcade of those Trump assholes. Oh, God, really? This was actually before the shooting. My God. And um, I don't know where they were off to. Maybe they were trying to get in the way of people getting vaccinations or something. Who knows what the fuck they were doing? But it was like a motorcade of like, awful. you know, 20, 25 cars and they had their signs and everything. And it's one of those situations where it's like, I wish I had a rock. Yeah, right, right, right run up to the one of those cars and just right through the driver's side and just yeah i know i have so many uh, thoughts that right now that you know are not i'm sorry you cut out there can you uh, say that one last 10 seconds again what's really funny is that i said i have a lot of thoughts about them that are not legal to say out loud and then and then they just kind of i think zoom knew it's like he can't say this stuff <laughs> I go to, you know, stand-up comedy shows every once in a while, and I have a lot of fun. But it seems on the outside, like it's very, um, very, it seems very racist to me. It seems like uh, everybody yeah. <laughs> making jokes at everybody else's expense. And those people who are making the jokes are the white people, and they're always there making jokes about everybody. So when you perform at these different places, do you have that same feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't talk about race my first year of doing comedy. You know, when I first started, I was like, I don't want to be the comic that complains about race, you know? Mm -hmm. And then one night I'm at this kind of this open mic um, and they're all white comics. I'm the only Asian one there. And there's a black uh, audience member in the front row. And every comic would start doing crowd work, racist crowd work to the one black audience member. Mm -hmm. First comic does it. That's kind of funny. Second comic, that's kind of funny. Third, and all of a sudden, it's like seven comics in a row. It's like, you, you guys are racist. Like, this is so racist. So I went on stage and I, I just vented. I said, like, we have to laugh louder at racist jokes to make it okay for you white pieces of shit to laugh, you know? Every time a racist joke happens, like, oh, ch ching chong, whatever, everyone has to turn to me, go like, can I laugh? And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. everyone, look at me. I'm laughing. It's okay, everyone. Even though inside I'm like, dude, this is like, this is not cool. What I hate about these racist jokes is like, I think you should be able to joke about anything, right? I think that you should be able to say well, everything, but if you're telling racist jokes that I can hear in like 1980, mm -hmm. it's like, come on guys. It's like, it's been 30 years. You haven't updated your takes on race. Like this is, at some point, it's just like you're pushing forth stereotypes. With stand-up comedy, it's a lot of just that, even if you're not talking about race, it's like the same topics since I was a kid. People are still talking about like, oh, aren't men do this and women do that and black people do this and white people do that. And it hasn't like evolved as an art form, I think. You know what I mean? Like other art forms don't do like the same shit they did 30 years ago. So yeah, it's a lot of outdated shit. And I think comedy has gotten even more racist now. All these like alt-right fucking right. people and, and everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, I actually, you know, I was actually in therapy before this and I didn't know what was bothering me. And I ended up yelling about uh, male comics for the entire hour. I just, all I did was complain about them. I, you know, the world's opening back up. I have to probably work with some of them again. And I guess I would say that the racism is actually worse, you know, especially offstage. It feels to me like stand-up comedy is like this fraternity. It's like a boys club. Yeah, that's what it seems like. You could be a woman in the boys club, but you have to be one of the guys. You know, even yeah. if you're a woman, you'd be one of the guys. Mm -hmm. So I've never really fit into that kind of group. I think doing roast battle was like the closest where it's like, okay, Robin, maybe Robin's cool. And it's one of us, but it's not like a natural part of my personality really. But let me go a little, a little different direction here. Do you ever think about doing 
like a, um, a sitcom or any acting at all. It seems like you would be a very good actor. And do you have any plans to do that? I was a theater arts major, actually. Oh. Um, but before my parents said, um, you should quit being a theater arts major because you'll never make money doing anything on stage. But yeah, I was a, a drama student for an elementary school, junior high, theater arts major. And I do have ideas for like potential sitcoms. You know, I've written some log lines. I actually had some meetings with some executives hmm. before COVID happened, but I would love to have my own sitcom. I have so much to say that stand up is like a limiting art form sometimes. Like I love stand up, but you know, like when you have, when you want to tell a story with different characters and stuff, I'm, I am not able to tell it on stage. I would love to see it. I hope that happens. Oh, thank you. I hope the you know these stupid executives in Hollywood that they take a crowbar <laughs> and open up their their coffers and throw you a, a couple of drachmas or something because that would be so hilarious to see. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Here's another thing. I, when people listed those comics on Twitter, I went and checked all of them out. It wasn't ten, okay? It was like fifteen. I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> but, but still twenty percent, okay, for you. And um. <laughs> Then I checked out all these comics, and yeah, some of them were funny, but the, I thought some of them were putting on airs. They had, like, really uh, well-fit clothing, and they had, like, wonderful hairdos, and they had, like, a very specific style and everything, but you're on stage, you're just being yourself, and you seem super-duper natural. Yeah. And it's like, whatever you say, it's hilarious. So the material is, like top-notch, but you don't have to zhuzh it very much. You just have to be you. And everybody else seems they're, like they're trying to get some kind of angle and zhuzh this and zhuzh that, but you're already zhuzhed. I have this issue with stand-up in general. I feel like people are either just going up there and they're trying to say the right thing, right, which I mm -hmm. think is not interesting to watch, or they try to say the wrong thing, mm -hmm. which is also not interesting to watch. You know, I want I to say, like, something honest, I want to come from like an like me first. How do I honestly feel about something, right? A emotional honesty. I've been told that even though a lot of my fans are not trans, they relate to my material. Because mm -hmm. I, I tell it in a way where they're like, oh, if I was trans, I would also be insecure about this thing. Don't just tell me things I agree with or something that I'm going to get mad at. Mm -hmm. Make me laugh with something I haven't thought of yet. And I, and I think that's what I try to do. You're very successful at it. And it must be very hard because I do writing myself. My thing is um, a scripted comedy. That's what I do. I, I often partner up with my lady wife and we do writing for, we actually have a TV show and we write for that and for other things. And it's a real struggle, but it's something I'm really good at. But you, it seems like everything you come up with is unique and fresh. Oh, I appreciate that. I actually think what you do is a lot harder. I actually got lucky, you know, being an English major actually came in handy because I wrote so many essays like thesis statement, three body paragraphs, and the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of got into the rhythm. And then I realized that when you're writing a joke, it's the same thing. It's the premise of the joke is more important than the actual joke itself. It's what is this joke about? Why am I saying it? You know, like the, a lot of comedians, they think that people are not laughing because their punchline is not funny. It's like, it's not because mm -hmm. your punchline is not funny. It's because no one knows what you're talking about. Right. It's not clear what your point of view is. It's not clear. So I think... It's become easy for me just because I've wrote so many essays. Hmm. Jokes of mine, they kind of come fully formed in my brain now. It, it gets really nerdy, but I worked really, really hard for a long time for it to be really easy now. It's actually easy for me to do comedy now because it, I spent 10 years working so hard at it, you know? 
So when you work at it, you're, it seems like you're working at it in lots of different ways. You're working, you go onto TikTok and you do your things on TikTok, yeah. which are, is not really stand-up. But some of it's stand-up, but some of it's just like interesting idea. I really kind of like that. And then you do your stand-up and then there's just different ways that you communicate. And I'm always on Twitter looking at what you're saying and everything. <laughs> yeah. And you do it a lot per the day. A lot of yes. people just one day they'll do Twitter post and the next day they won't. But you're like doing Twitter posts like five times a day and it's all a thought out comedy idea. Yeah. The reason is because well, I told you I was like depressed for my life. I would say like 90% of my life was spent in bed wanting to kill myself, you know, and I got medicated like a year and a half ago. So I went through like two years where I didn't write any jokes at all. I was in bed. I, I was like, I didn't think I was going to live for like another day. Like, you know, that was the most, and then I got medicated and my brain got clear for the first time in my life a year and a half ago. And I have not stopped writing jokes. I've written jokes every single day, all day long for a year. And, a half. and I think that my brain used to think about all these existential stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what does it all mean? Who am I? Am I a bad person? What am I doing with my time? But all that has been replaced with just jokes. Like, it's like I have almost like an autistic. It's just my brain is all I do is think about jokes all day. I don't think about anything else. Well, keep on thinking. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you would like to say to your many, many fans out there? My fans have made this pandemic like the best year of my life. You know, and I know that's a strange thing to say, but the world was not nice to me for most of my life. And I feel like having fans that are so amazing, it's kind of overwhelming how, how nice it feels that they're, they're such sweet people. So thank you. I thank you for everything. Well, thank you, Robin Tran, for being on my funny little podcast. I love you so much. Thank you. Follow Robin Tran on TikTok at Robin Tran Comedian. One word. Thank you so much to all my contributors. I love you so much. Mm, sassy grunting. Music for the podcast by Dr. Stevo. Go to drstevo.com. D O C T O R S T E E V O.com. And by Chuck Serino. Go to chuckserino.com. C H U C K C I R I N O.com. If you want to help this podcast out, please, please, please do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash Coastlaws on Fire, one word, and just uh, drop a few greenbacks for us so we can keep on going. We can buy some, like, 3D old soup or something. <laughs>